On Pacifica Radio, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, and Queso in Cottage Grove, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans' WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, say hi to my sister, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and Minneapolis St. Paul's AM950 KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSendler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, and Detour Talk. Planeting Blanket Earth. Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week. Almost made it through all that. This is usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but I am Angie Coro sitting in today of In Deep with Angie Coro, heard on many of these same stations and streams. One more time tomorrow, by the way, too. So it's the kind of day when things just come in over the post. I literally opened the microphone and a Bulletin came in from the Washington Post. So you and I are going to read this together. It looks very interesting. Headline, Michael Cohen's $600,000 deal with AT&T. Remember, we talked about that yesterday. Specified he would advise on the Time Warner merger. Apparently, the Post got hold of some internal company records. Three days after Trump was sworn into office, AT&T turned to Michael Cohen for help on a wide portfolio of issues pending before the federal government, including the company's proposed merger with Time Warner. And you know how problematic that merger turned out to be. As soon as you looked at the collective value of both companies and the stranglehold on American information, hmm. The internal documents revealed for the first time Cohen's $600,000 deal with AT&T specified he'd provide advice on the $85 billion with a B merger, which required the approval of federal antitrust regulators. Interesting. Okay, like I said, this just came over the transom, so we already had a pretty full plate. Starting with the unfortunate and ongoing dance between Israel, Syria, and Iran, it continued in the exchange of bomb attacks yesterday. No reports on casualties as I speak these words, but Iran reports that its military bases and equipment took a serious hit. Israel said Syria struck first. You will not be surprised to hear there's dispute over that. Dr. Trita Parsi joins me to sort through the reports and the implications of this latest violence. And he has been a guest here before. I strongly recommend you listen to Brad's interview with Dr. Parsi last October. Trita Parsi is an award-winning author, president of the independent nonprofit National Iranian American Council. I'm out. And it's essentially a he said, she said on who fired first. What sources do you go to for trusted information on that? I'm trying to talk to people on the ground in the region, but just, I mean, I, I'm happy you started off with that question because what I found quite shocking is that the lead and the headlines in most stories is a repeat of what the Israelis said, which is that they're responding to fire from the Syrian side and they claim that it was Iran starting it. Um, 
And there's nothing in the reports that point out that the Iranians have not claimed credit and have not and actually have gone out and denied that it was them. Whether we believe them or not, that should be in the story. But it was even more curious is that when you go halfway through the stories, even the New York Times piece said that this firing uh, came in response to the Israelis bombing Syria on Wednesday evening. Mm-hmm. So the narrative that, you know, the Israelis took the first action is actually confirmed by the New York Times, but yet they still do not go with that lead. They still go along with a narrative that says that the Israelis were responding, even though their own story, but kind of buried in it, disproves that. So it's it's kind of shocking to see that. This is not to say whether Iran or whether Syria or whether Israel is right in this conflict. It's about, okay, what actually happened here? And the media seems to know what happened, but is going out of its way to report it differently. You know, this is a good time to clarify that even though you head up the National Iranian American Council, that is an independent nonprofit that whereas you don't speak for Iran, you don't represent Iran. Not at all. On the contrary. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, we have our membership in our community has tremendous difficulties with the government in Iran and the overwhelming majority opposes the regime in Iran. And I myself have several friends in Iranian prisons right now. Mm-hmm. But the overwhelming majority of the Iranian-American community would like to avoid another war in the region, would like to see uh, some sort of a diplomatic solution between the United States and Iran rather than this going to another Syria, another Iraq, another Libya scenario. But we can take that aside altogether as well. This is actually about, okay, what happened and how is the reporting reflecting it? Is it reflecting it accurately or not? And what scares me, having lived through the Iraq war and seeing how horrible the reporting was, the reporting facilitated the Bush administration being able to drag the country into war. And I'm afraid I'm seeing some of those signs once again. In fact, Al Jazeera tweeted out today that this is essentially a proxy proxy war. There's almost nothing to do with Syria. It's essentially between Israel and Iran. Does that strike you as an accurate characterization? Uh, There certainly is um, a proxy element to it. But what Al Jazeera is reporting is a simplification because uh, there are indications that it actually wasn't the Iranians who were bombing uh, Israel. It was the Syrians. Mm-hmm. Well, if the Syrians are doing it, and it's whatever one thinks of that regime, it's an independent country, um, to say that they have nothing to do with this is also, I think, um, taking some agency away from them. Um, clearly, there are proxy wars going on in the region, uh, but most of those wars are usually wars that started independently and then turn into proxy wars. Take what's happening in Yemen, for instance. There is an independent Yemeni crisis with various Yemeni factions fighting each other. And then later on, both the Saudis and the Iranians stepped in and started supporting different sides in that conflict. And at various times, it's become more of a proxy war than it has become an actual Yemeni war. same thing can be said about what's going on in Syria, etc. So while making sure that we understand the proxy dimension, it's also important not to think of it as solely being driven by that, because even if Saudi Arabia and Iran were to step back right now from Yemen, does not mean that the conflict there would end. Let's talk about international oversight here and what can be done to check out the various accounts of what happened last night, what might happen in the future. According to the independent UK, Iranian officials said the attacks took out most of Iran's military infrastructure in Syria. Is there a way to check that? Is there a way to ascertain how much military power actually remains there? 
Um, not easily. I mean, there's definitely satellite imaging and other things that we can utilize to be able to get an assessment of how much damage has been. And, and of course, uh, there may be assets on the ground that could add additional information. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is so scary, and I mean, the, 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 the saying that, you know, the first thing that dies in a war, the first casualty is true. Yes. It's kind of scary when you see that happening right in front of your eyes in which it's actually somewhat clear what happened, but the reporting is going out of its way to portray it a different way. Mm-hmm. And again, I want to emphasize, it doesn't mean whether the Israelis are right or wrong or whether the Iranians are right or wrong in the larger conflict. That's a different matter. We're talking about what is happening right now, what's happened in the last 24, 48 hours. And part of the reason why this is so important is because if one of the motivations one of a potential explanation as to what is happening right now is that the Israelis feel that they have an opportunity to trigger a war that would suck the U.S. into it. Mm-hmm. Part of their capacity of being able to succeed is if the media reports their efforts as being completely defensive. Well, if it's perceived as a defensive war, then it's more likely that it could actually lead to the United States getting dragged into it. That's why it's so important to make sure that the reporting is accurate, that in case it isn't defensive, the public knows about it, so we're not sending our um, servicemen and women into a war for uh, on a false premise, just like we did in Iraq. Well, let's talk about accuracy and truth in reporting. I saw a number of arguments yesterday uh, erupting online because apparently even some mainstream media put the Golan Heights in Israel. They said Golan Heights is Israeli land. Um, if that's the case, are we talking about international ignorance? Are we talking about an acknowledgement of how the majority of people view it? I mean, that just struck me as very odd. That is absolutely disputed. These are occupied territories under international law. Uh, there's still Syrian territory. There's uh, been attempts at peace negotiations. The, the Israelis make the argument, very different argument from what they're making uh, for the West Bank, for instance. In the West Bank, the argument has oftentimes been that there is a religious, historic attachment to the land. They believe that it belongs to larger Israel. Uh, when it comes to Golan, there is no such claim. It's just saying that it's such a strategically pivotal area that Israel would be under tremendous security uh, difficulties if that territory went back to the Syrians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is annexed. Uh, um, it is not accepted by anyone, I don't think even by the United States. But again, this is where... You know, if the if the reporting is so inaccurate, um, then it's highly problematic. And, and it's also interesting because some of these operations have been in the Golan. And from the Syrian perspective, it's not been in Israeli territory. It's been in Syrian territory because Golan um, does belong to Syria. And if we then report that as if there's a Syrian invasion of um, uh, of Israel, whereas in reality we're talking about this disputed territory, once again, it gives the impression that one side is being completely defensive. Uh, let me ask you two more questions, and these have to do with recent developments uh, that we've seen in the news outside of the bombing. Max Boot said yesterday in the Washington Post, and the article was entitled, It Turns Out Trump is Better at Destroying Deals Than Making Them. He says the onus will be on Trump to conclude a new deal with Iran that has no sunset provisions does have even more intrusive inspection requirements along with limits on Iran's ballistic missiles and its destabilizing activities. To achieve this feat, he says, Trump will have to either make a credible threat of force against Iran, which risks an outbreak of war, 
or reapply international sanctions that were lifted after the deal was reached in 2015. First of all, I want to note how quickly the the discontinuation of the, of the Iran deal, of the nuclear deal, has fallen out of the headlines. So much has happened since then. But what's your take on what Max Boot has to say? Well, we, I think we have to remember that this is an individual that was quite involved in, in selling the Iraq war to the American public. Mm-hmm. And the structure of the argument is very interesting. First, you present something that most people would say would be desirable. Obviously, it would be desirable to have an agreement that had longer, um, uh, uh, that would last longer than the 15 years that the original deal was struck. That's desirable. Is it achievable? That's a different question. And actually, in very large extent, it is not achievable because it was attempted. It wouldn't. Uh, but in order for the United States to get that, the United States would actually have to offer the Iranians much more. And the Obama administration was not willing to do so, partly because they knew that the internal reaction in the United States would become even more aggressive if that was done, even more negative. So you put forward a, a, an objective that is desirable, and then you put two pathways forward. Both of them that actually will lead to war. The first one, of course, is to threaten military strikes, which increases the risk of war. The other one is to go for sanctions. In most cases, when you impose sanctions of that kind, it actually does increase the risk of war. So if you want war, but you know that the American public doesn't want war, your way of selling war to them is to try to pretend as if you're trying to achieve something desirable. But in that process, you actually increase the risk of war, but without letting the public know about it. Because the way it's presented is like, oh, we're being so reasonable. We're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to achieve something desirable. Mm -hmm. Whereas in reality, that thing is unachievable, and the pathways you're presenting will inevitably lead to a military confrontation. Yes, always question the premise. It was easier back in 2002, because back in 2002, the Bush administration openly said, we need to attack Iraq. But precisely because that went so badly, precisely because the American public turns so much against the war. Their attempt to sell war now is by pretending that they're trying to avoid war. Last question for you, Dr. Parsi. Uh, in the wake of the release of the three American hostages from North Korea, the New York Times ran a story on what this might mean for American hostages held in Iran. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, as I told uh, um, CNN today, um, in most of the cases, if not all of the cases where uh, prisoners in Iran have been released, it's either been because a third country has done a lot of diplomacy and managed to get them out, and then the Iranians said that they released them for humanitarian reasons, or it was because there was direct diplomacy between the United States and We're right now seeing none of that. The channel of communication between the United States and Iran that existed was the one that was created by the nuclear deal. That channel is now closed because the U.S. walked out of the nuclear deal. Mm. And I, uh, and for the many families that are extremely worried about what's going to happen to their relatives, this is a very bad scenario because as Jason Rezaian, who was one of the prisoners released in 2016, said that the current prisoners in Iran have, have completely gotten lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. Dr. Parsi, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Trita Parsi is the head of the National Iranian American Council and the author of Treacherous Alliance, A Single Roll of the Dice, and his latest book, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Up next on the broadcast, the head of Human Rights Watch's office in Israel has been kicked out 
for his support of the international BDS boycott. I will talk to Brad Adams of Human Rights Watch about that and about the release of American hostages from North Korea. Then it's Daphne Eviatar with Amnesty International on the Gina Haspel nomination. Later, if you've been noticing an awful lot of coverage of the sins of Scott Pruitt, they have all come from one source. Not too far away on the Bradcast. I'm Angie Coiro. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Coro. Brad and Dez are on vacation. I am here for a few more days visiting from In Deep with Angie Coro. Just a few minutes ago, I told you it's what kind of day where stuff just keeps piling in. While I was waiting to introduce this segment to you, got word from the New York Times. Another pending resignation from the Trump administration, which has such a skill for holding on to people. It's not clear that she's leaving altogether, but the headline is Homeland Security Secretary was close to resigning after Trump berated her yesterday. Kirsten Nielsen, the Homeland Security Secretary, told colleagues she was close to resigning after he berated her in front of the entire cabinet for what he said was her failure to adequately secure the nation's borders. He's just got a skill with people, doesn't he? He's got the touch. She's a protege of John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff. She has drafted a resignation letter but has not yet submitted it. According to two of the people talking to the New York Times, she's in charge of 20,000 employees who may end up without a boss very soon. His anger toward her at the meeting was part of a lengthy tirade in which the president railed at his entire cabinet about what he said was its lack of progress towards sealing the borders against illegal immigrants. Sarah Huckabee Sanders said the president is committed to fixing our broken immigration system and our porous borders. Okay, that's the latest to just come in on the bulletins. Now, true confession. Yesterday... After finishing the show, I really was kicking myself. I was, because with so many balls in the air, I failed to cover the release of three American hostages by North Korea. And I had meant to do that. I want to be even-handed. If something good happens on Donald Trump's watch, it is absolutely fair and right to report on it. And be frank, I just dropped the ball. I dropped the ball. So I said to myself while I was thinking about it last night, credit where due, I will make this up tomorrow. And just that tiny window of time, he screwed things up. He did it again. First, he patted Kim Jong-un on the back. We want to thank him. He was really excellent to these three incredible people. Stand by to hear how many ways that was wrong. Then he took the opening to slam his bete noire, Barack Obama. On Twitter, of course, he said... As everybody is aware, the past administration has long been asking for three hostages to be released from a North Korean labor camp, but to no avail. Stay tuned. 
Well, yeah, except no. Two of these three were actually grabbed by North Korea after Trump took over the White House on his watch. But why should he know that? I'm on the record as having tried to be responsible. Let's go into that and to some other related topics with Brad Adams of Human Rights Watch. So, Brad, I, I want to start out with you. I just want to get your reaction to the inexplicable Donald Trump saying that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un was really excellent to the three U.S. citizens released by North Korea. And I'm, I'm sure that Human Rights Watch may not have issued a specific statement, but there must be some opinions about that uh, terminology. Yeah, well, Trump, as you know, has a habit of um, saying nonsensical things about some of the world's worst dictators and strongmen. He's complimented Xi Jinping on his election uh, as president of China uh, when there was no election. He has praised uh, Duterte, um, who is responsible for thousands of extrajudicial killings in the Philippines. And now he's praising Kim, who presides over the country's, over the world's worst human rights situation. Uh, North Korea runs, famously runs a gulag still. Um, it has uh, forced labor in prisons. They engage in public executions. I mean, this is a man who um, had his uncle uh, executed, uh, apparently for a policy disagreement. Mm. Um, so, you know, any praise of Kim uh, in any part of this process is ridiculous. Kim is probably the world's worst dictator. North Koreans probably have the least amount of freedoms in the world. And that's something that Trump should be saying um, in every sentence. Uh, you know, we need to work with the North Koreans on denuclearization, he could say. But at the same time, we are going to continue to stand up against dictatorship and for the North Korean people. To get a realistic picture, do we have any concrete information about what may have happened to these hostages when they were being held? No, we don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure they're going to tell their stories. Uh, I heard one of them on the radio uh, today explaining that he was in a, um, a camp where they send people who are sentenced to hard labor, and he was basically saying he was doing manual labor and farming from 8 in the morning till 6 at night every day. He also said that um, he knew that because he was an American, he was getting better treatment than other people. So it may be that they weren't physically tortured, because the North Koreans take Americans um, as hostages. And they're arrested for nonsensical reasons. And the North Koreans know that they are always going to be traded at some point. There's a long history of this mm-hmm. um, that dates back decades. And so for the most part, they don't mistreat the Americans. The Otto Wambier uh, case is an outlier. And it is a mystery about what happened to him and why he came back to the U.S. in a coma and subsequently died. Right. Do we, are there any other Americans still being held by North Korea? Um, not to our knowledge, but sometimes... Uh, we only learn about Americans who have been detained um, long after the fact. There have been a couple of cases in the past where we at Human Rights Watch have learned that there were detainees, but we've been asked by their families not to make that public as they tried to negotiate their release. But um, as of today, uh, we at Human Rights Watch do not know of any such cases. Let's talk about uh, the effect that having those North Korea hostages come back, what that might mean for hostages who are held in Iran. And uh, tell me first, Brad, how many do we know are held there? What are the circumstances? And do you think this will make any difference for them? Uh, You know, Iran is a 
different subject. It, it, it is, um, certainly has an authoritarian bent in its government because of the role of the supreme leader, but it is not a dictatorship. Um, they have elections. The elections are constrained because certain candidates, more moderate and liberal ones, are barred from running. Um, but it's not at all the same situation. Um, they're not really comparable. That said, um, the Iranians uh, obviously are very angry about the cancellation of the nuclear agreement by Trump. And there's good reason to speculate that hardliners there, particularly the Revolutionary Guards, um, may arrest some Americans, often it's dual citizens uh, who are arrested and accused of espionage. Uh, the suspicions of the U.S. are um, increasing by the day. And of course, you know, the, the, one of the main comparisons to make between Iran and North Korea is one that many people are making, not least in the U.S. national security community, which is why should North Korea trust any deal that Donald Trump offers when um, he can rip up a deal with the U.S. government on a whim? Mm-hmm. I want to talk before we let you go about something that hit the news today. Uh, Israel, who expelled uh, the Human Rights Watch representative there, and yes. they accused him of supporting the widespread boycott of Israel, which, according to various reports, is something they knew about anyway and threatened not to have him there in the first place. Can you uh, give us the Human Rights Watch's stance on what happened here? Yeah, it's nonsense. Human Rights Watch does not um, support boy boycotts of Israel. Um, there are people who do. There are academics and others who um, have taken that position. Uh, you know, our position globally is we don't, uh, we're not in favor of boycotts, things like tourism boycotts or travel boycotts, certainly not of boycotts of academic conferences, uh, which are often what's boycotted in Israel. Um, you know, we want to be in countries to report on the human rights situation in those countries. We do it impartially. Uh, we don't take money from any governments. Uh, Israel claims that we have a political agenda, uh, which is just complete nonsense because uh, uh, we have published innumerable reports about Iran, for example, uh, an enemy of Israel, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, you name it. Um, we look at the human rights situation uh, impartially all over the world. And you know, basically, the reality is that the Israeli government um, can't stand the criticism because it's accurate and they don't like it. Well, Tablet Magazine had an, an interesting take on this, and it said both sides of this dispute are being disingenuous. The Israeli move is not an effort to combat BDS, the boycott, but a PR stunt for its government to posture against it. After all, if Human Rights Watch is really as biased against Israel as they claim, surely Shakir's replacement will be no better. On the flip side, they said, Human Rights Watch, on the other hand, is flagrantly lying about Shakir's conduct, as anyone with access to his publicly available Twitter feed can easily confirm. And it says that, uh, that contrary to Human Rights Watch's claim, neither Human Rights nor its representative Shakir promotes boycotts of Israel. And there's a, a screen capture of Omar Shakir saying, our movement keeps rolling, chalk up another BDS victory. So can you help us parse through that? I can't. Okay. Um, I don't. I, I don't read his Twitter feed. Um, I have no idea. I have no. I, I can't. I have, I have no idea um, what they're talking about. Whether it's accurate. Okay. There. There are a couple of screen feeds. Is 
Is there a, a code of conduct that Human Rights Watch would say, if you're going to represent us in another country, you need to maintain some impartiality here? Uh, yeah. Of course, the, the, the goal of this organization, the, the, the foundation of it is impartiality. That's why we don't take money from any governments. That's why we don't take money from corporations. We don't take money from interested parties. We turn down money from people that we think um, could create the appearance of uh, partiality. Uh, and I can tell you that costs us a lot of money because there are plenty of people around the world who would love to give us money to do their bidding. Um, we operate on the basis of international law, things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the Convention Against Torture, etc. Um, and we hold ourselves to those standards. And, um, and we are not a political organization. We are an apolitical organization. Uh, and, uh, and any suggestion of the contrary is really you know, nonsense. Now, uh, it is true that governments around the world, take, take the Chinese government or take the American government, um, accuse us of having a political motivation for the research and documentation that we produce. Um, that's basically the last refuge of the scoundrel, uh, because if you can't um, engage in a dialogue or a debate over our factual findings, you know, then you accuse us of bias. We're used to that. Um, we get it all over the world. I'm the Asia director. I get it in Pakistan and in India. I get it in Burma now from Aung San Suu Kyi. I get it from Cambodia, from Hun Sen. Um, and we get it from China all the time. The whole press conferences all the time to say we're biased. Um, mm -hmm. But they don't attack our factual findings. And so that, that's how you can judge us. Brad, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Sure. My pleasure. Brad Adams is the Asia Director of Human Rights Watch. Moving on to the Gina Haspel CIA hearing, the more coverage it gets, the worse she comes off. The ACLU noticed a big, shall we call it a mistake, in her Senate testimony. ACLU says during today's nomination, they wrote it yesterday, for Gina Haspel, President Donald Trump's pick to head the CIA, Haspel testified about a topic that has rightly generated significant controversy, the destruction of 92 videotapes showing CIA torture. Dr. Er, Senate Dianne Feinstein asked a question about the destruction of those tapes, misspeaking when she referred to tapes showing interrogation of 92 detainees. Haspel seemingly determined to correct Feinstein, stated the tapes were of only one detainee. But the CIA's own records, produced in response to the ACLU's torture transparency litigation, contradict Haspel. According to those records, which include a declaration under oath from then-CIA Director Leon Panetta, the 92 destroyed tapes depicted the abuse of two detainees. But why should she know that? More details at ACLU.org. So what would the CIA look like if she were, in fact, to take charge? I talked to Daphne Eviatar, Director of Security with Human Rights at Amnesty International USA. One of the commentaries I really wanted to get on this situation is from Amnesty International USA, because Amnesty can put this in the context of so many similar situations across the world where people are determining through their government what will happen to both citizens and non-citizens when they're in a police situation. We're going to bring in Daphne Eviatar. She's Director of Security with Human Rights at Amnesty International. Daphne, hi. Hi. So let's do talk about uh, Gina Haspel and 
One of the things we're seeing from yesterday's hearing is a lot of doubt being cast on whether she will, in fact, take the seat. If she does assume control of the CIA, what do her past actions indicate to you might be her future actions? Well, I mean, this is what's so difficult. First of all, she has really refused to make public a lot of information about her past actions. So, I think Senator Ron Wyden yesterday in his questioning, I think, really called attention to this point. He said there's a conflict of interest here where she was determining which information should be declassified and made available, not only to the committee, but to the public to determine whether she is competent to lead the CIA. And as we know, there have been a lot of allegations and reports and a lot of evidence to support the idea that she was involved in or supervised torture, uh, ran a black site in Thailand, and was critically involved in the destruction of evidence that it's clear Congress wanted at the time, and that Mm -hmm. others were interested in at the time, at a time when the whole torture program, information about the whole torture program was just coming out. So we don't have solid information about that because she has chosen not to reveal it. So that in itself suggests that she doesn't value um, well, certainly she doesn't value transparency. Then again, it's, we're talking about the CIA, so maybe that's not surprising. <laughs> but that she's not taking seriously the concern that she approved a program that she claims was legal at the time, but many people thought was illegal at the time. Torture has never been legal, and so it's very hard to see how she could have thought it was legal. But she refused in her hearing even to say that it was immoral, that she she just said you know she wouldn't subject she wouldn't ask CIA officers to participate in a, an abusive interrogation program again because she wouldn't want to put them at risk. Let me pry yeah. this apart a little bit. One, of course, is what torture is, what the definition of torture is, and unfortunately, during the Bush administration, we had that notorious John Woo memo, where yeah. it essentially said you know, torture is a free for all. Um, we had a number of major news organizations who refused for a good long time to call waterboarding torture. So let me ask first, does the CIA, being a secretive organization, being entrusted with the safety of the United States, how free are they to decide what torture is? That's a great question, right? Because they'll say, well, we follow the law and the law doesn't allow torture. But as we know, they didn't think waterboarding was torture at the time. Um, so in some, in some sense, it's not, it's not a completely clear definition. And they could, de- they could define it how they want to. Now, to some extent, you know, causing extreme pain in order to extreme distress, either emotional or physical, in order to extract information from someone is clearly torture. But they very well could push that line towards um, allowing more pain, more distress, more coercion, whereas Mm -hmm. international law would be much more restrictive. Let's put this in the context of what happens around the world in terms of torture. And here in the United States, we like to think that we're very respectful of individual rights, that we respect the rights not just of citizens, but until very recently, non-citizens. If we were to have a CIA under Gina Haspel and she were to reproduce the kind of actions and secrecy that she's demonstrated in the past, just off the top of your head, what kind of country would that put her on a, put us on a par with? <laughs> 
well with some of our, our great friends. You know, I mean, we have the part of the problem is the United States has great relations with countries like Saudi Arabia that torture and countries like the UAE that torture the United Arab Emirates. I mean, there are a lot of countries around the world that engage in various forms of torture, Afghanistan, um, you know, which we have strong support for and connections with. So it's, we don't like to, I think Americans don't like to think that we are on the, on par with Saudi Arabia in terms of how we treat our prisoners. But it's interesting that the United States, and certainly under the Trump administration even more so, has been very supportive of many of these regimes that are known to torture prisoners. So that, I mean, that, that adds to the problem. But yeah, we'd be putting ourselves certainly in a, a league that we wouldn't normally want to be associated with. There was an article that I shared with our audience yesterday that appeared in the New York Times. It was a first-person account of a woman who had fled Libya, and she was essentially tortured by the CIA, who then took her back to Libya. What is the United States' responsibility to look after the rights of people who, in fact, are citizens of another country? And and Give me some insight as to Amnesty International's uh, position on a case like that. Well, so under international law, the United States or any country is not allowed to transfer someone to the custody of a country where they're likely to be tortured or harmed. Um, so Libya would have been the obvious example. That would have been an illegal transfer. Then this is under international law. This is the Convention Against Torture. The United States is a signatory. There's no question about that. The United States says that it complies with that law. But as you said, and as we discuss the CIA is very secretive. And so it can do, it, it transfers people. It does a lot of things that we just don't know about. And it's very hard to enforce that. But there is an obligation never to transfer someone to a country where they could be tortured. Amnesty International has been in the business of many, many years of trying to look after people who have been deserted, not just by other people, forgotten by other people, but deserted by their countries who ought to be taking care of them. Tell me about Amnesty International's techniques to get a to get a halt put to things like what the CIA is doing. Because the CIA is secretive, yeah. there's a lot that they can cover up that can be said to be in the interest of national security. What kind of impact and what kind of influence can an outside agency have on what they do and, and keeping a, a close eye on what they get away with in the future? Well, what we do really is we try to mobilize ordinary citizens to take action. And what we have found is that that's actually the most effective way to do things. So since the 1960s, when we started, we've, we'll focus on cases. And there might be a specific case of an individual who is in prison in, a, in another country who's a political prisoner, or it might be a policy that we think is a violation of human rights. And we encourage people to take specific action. So it depends on what the situation is. And when you're talking about the CIA, it would be an action trying to encourage the, in this case, the Trump administration to um, not to be torturing, right? Or to encourage Congress, where you might find a little bit more sympathy from certain members to be exercising oversight because they have an oversight responsibility, including over the CIA. And I think it's extremely important, particularly in this administration, when you have a lot of secrecy, but you also have a president who has openly supported torture, right? Mm-hmm. He would say, he has said, I would do waterboarding and worse. 
And Gina Haspel at her hearing specifically said, she was asked, would you take a loyalty oath to the president? And he said, um, and she said, well, I'm, I'm loyal to the American people. But she didn't say she wouldn't promise loyalty to the president. And she, when she was specifically asked if she would report that to the co- congressional committee, if he asked her to, she said no. So there's a concern that her loyalty to the president and his interest in torture and his support for torture, at least as he stated in the past, could lead us down a really dangerous road. And so the way Amnesty responds to that is when we try and advocate directly with the government, but we really try and get ordinary people to pressure their representatives in their states, wherever they are, you know, whether it's in Congress or the executive branch, whether it's writing letters or making phone calls, we do online actions to say we care about this and we're watching. Because if people don't care and people aren't watching, then the government does whatever it wants. I just want to stop to acknowledge the the pit of the stomach reaction to hearing someone who is nominated for a high office with a lot of power in the United States to conflate the interest of the country and the White House and the president and the government all in one ball. I mean, I hope that alarms many people who are hearing it. One last question for you, and that would be about the hearings themselves. With the hearings, did you feel in that short window of it that was open for public view, because they closed it down to public view very quickly, did you see questioning that gave you heart that people are taking this, that Congress people are taking this seriously? Yes. I saw some excellent questioning. Um, Ron Wyden's questioning that I mentioned, Kamala Harris had some really excellent questions where she pointedly asked that, uh, asked Gina Haspel, does she believe that torture is immoral? Does she believe that the CIA program was immoral? Gina Haspel refused to answer it. So they were really good questions, people who really take this issue seriously. So yes, now I don't know yet if there are enough who take it seriously that are going to be willing to vote against her. But I think there was some really tough questioning, and it was very heartened to see that. Daphne Eviatar is Director of Security with Human Rights at Amnesty International. Daphne, thanks for fitting me in today. Thank you so much. Quick break, then lots more. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. We really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world, and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you.
I'm Angie Claro in for Brad and Desi today on the broadcast. The GOP is $30 million richer, courtesy of gazillionaire Sheldon Adelson. Extra points to Vox.com, which titled its post on this. Sheldon Adelson cuts $30 million check to help House Republicans win the midterms. The casino billionaire is fighting for the common man. Well played, Vox. The original story comes from Politico. It underlines just how ridiculous the law is when it comes to observing the letter of the law while clearly violating its spirit. Listen to how this is done from Politico. The long-sought donation was sealed last week when, according to two senior Republicans, House Speaker Paul Ryan flew to Las Vegas to meet with the billionaire at his Venetian hotel. Also at the meeting with Adelson was his wife, Miriam, Norm Coleman, the former Minnesota senator who chairs the Republican Jewish Coalition, Corey Bliss, who oversees the Super PAC, and Jake Kasten, Ryan's number two political aide. They laid out the case to Adelton about how crucial it is to protect the House. Here's the kicker. As a federally elected official, Ryan is not permitted to solicit seven-figure political donations. When Ryan left the room, Coleman made the ask and secured the $30 million contribution. Okay, so Ryan can't solicit, but he can stand there and make the case. That's not soliciting. He can make the case as long as he doesn't do the ask. He puts one thin door behind himself and the action, and boom, through the GOP's so-called Congressional Leadership Fund, the amount common people can contribute to elections is criminally dwarfed. That is how that works. And the Sierra Club on a not unrelated story, has uncovered 24,000 pages of emails showing how EPA devastator Scott Pruitt gets all of his goodies. Most of them are legal, some perhaps a little bit grayer. The Sierra Club first filed a FOIA request to get all those emails about how Pruitt and his gang conduct business. When official feet began to lag a bit too long, the club went to court. They got the emails. The news went out. And now you can see stories like this. New York Times on how the documents reveal that an ex-lobbyist for foreign governments helped plan a Pruitt trip to Australia. And EPA emails show an effort to shield Pruitt from public scrutiny. Good details on that one. Stick around. New Republic. Pruitt used a military helicopter to visit a coal mine and other bits he wanted to hide about his state action tour last summer. The Daily Beast and NBC covered the -the over-the-top expenditures at a luxury hotel in Italy. That must be nice. While Pruitt was on official business. Oh, and while he was in Rome, the Washington Post reports, a lobbyist picked up the tab for a high-end dinner. And Hugh Hewitt, political commentator from the right, pulled strings to get his client priority in the cleanup of a Superfund site. Some of these arguably tiny, many of them not. Altogether, pretty egregious. So for more on this treasure trove, I talked to Elena Saxonhouse, senior attorney with the Sierra Club. Let's talk about the emails that show that there was some effort to say he is not accountable to the public, that he should be free from public scrutiny. Right. Yeah. A lot of these emails um, have to do with uh, kind of the efforts that his staff will go to to keep his um, activities shielded from the public and keep things secret. Um, They 
you know, there's been this history where they won't release his schedule um, before he uh, before he goes places, which makes it very hard for uh, reporters to cover, hard for, you know, if people want to protest his policies, things like that, for people to show up. Um, and they close many events uh, to the per all pretty much all of his events are closed to the press. And you see in these emails the staffers um, coordinating with the the event coordinators to say, no, we're not going to have open Q&A, or we want to see the questions you're planning to ask, or even scripting questions for um, uh, for the people in the audience um, to ask Pruitt, um, so that he really doesn't get uh, criticism or accountability um, from people who may disagree with um, the the destructive or what what we at Sierra Club believe are very destructive policies that he has. Uh, by contrast, it looks like it was pretty much an open door for the Heritage Foundation. There's a lot of influence there. Exactly. Um, you know, the Heritage Foundation was sending over proposed talking points, and they say, thank you, this will be helpful in preparing his speech. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's just a, you know, endless stream of private meetings with, um, you know, an access for polluter lobbyists and, and you know, political, very conservative um, political allies of him, they get a lot of access, whereas uh, the public does not. Let's talk about something that I'm afraid has become so normalized that people may not see the problem here. And I'm going to the Mother Jones piece that excerpted uh, what they said were the 10 biggest revelations from the papers. Just Pruitt with the executives, and this was after Pruitt was confirmed, he went to an executive roundtable in Oklahoma, and he was alone with executives with the Oklahoma Oil and Gas Association, which is uh, it has memberships including Devon Energy, Halliburton, General Electric, Electric, Mustang Fuel, and BP. Now, my fear with this is that the connections between government and commercial enterprises has become so day-to-day that the American people may look at that and say, hey, he met with a bunch of oil executives. What's the problem here? Yeah, yeah, no, that that may be true. But um, the problem is that what we see here is that um, – you know, a typical EPA administrator would be listening to many different viewpoints, would be listening also to the career um, staff, scientists, and engineers. And the thing about Pruitt that especially becomes very clear in these um, in these email exchanges and his schedules is that he's just not interested in the facts and having an honest debate about the policy. Um, uh, and it's just completely about doing favors for uh, polluter, polluter, you know, his polluter friends and his political allies. And, um, you know, the, the actual mission of EPA to protect the public health and the environment seems to be really the furthest thing from his mind. So, um, you know, certainly it's um, not unusual for an EPA administrator to sometimes meet with industry, but what's the pro- the problem is here that it's so one-sided and so um, based on uh, politics rather than facts and science. Well, there's also this effort to keep protest to a minimum, and this one is a little bit chilling to me. And I'm again referring to the Mother Jones interpretation: a request to take down a public schedule out of concern over a session disruption, and essentially. What Pruitt was doing here as a public official was working to seal 
people out and seal scrutiny out of a meeting with the federal with the Federalist Society. And apparently this public schedule would normally, because he is a government uh, official, normally would be accessible to the public. And again, an EPA official was talking about taking it down. Yeah, they do not post a schedule until after the fact. And I, I you know, agree with this in, this um, interpretation. Certainly there's evidence of it in the emails that it is. It is to prevent um, scrutiny, prevent uh, criticism, and um, block out uh, the public. And it, we see it over and over again in how they're planning his events. What about the influence that is uh, that takes the form of, well, here you can have a hotel room. I'm going to rent a car for you, that kind of thing. How far outside the norm is that? Um, I think this, what we're seeing with Scott Pruitt is the most, it's unprecedented um, for, in terms of um, what, has been documented in terms of the the types of favors, the types of access he gets, uh, or um, the, the, that industry uh, gets with him. And I think it is unusual to have a uh, company like Toyota that has, certainly has business before the agency um, setting him up with a test drive of a Lexus. That was one of the more colorful details in the, mm -hmm. in the, the emails that has come out. Um, you know, Pruitt's in the process of, of rolling back um, clean car standards. And um, there you have, you know, an automaker offering him this kind of um, a favor. And it's definitely very disturbing. And I don't think you see things like that in, in previous administrations. You know, looking over the uh, list of the coverage that the press has given this data dump, there was one that struck me as perhaps hitting a commonality, even a, a society as fractured as ours. You could get the climate change deniers, and they're not going to care if he's talking to oil executives. And, you know, of course, those of us on the left care a great deal. This one, although it may sound minor, struck me as something that might hit a chord with everyone. Scott Pruitt used a military helicopter to visit a coal mine. And what I'm hoping there is that there's respect for the military pretty much universally across the United States. And this rather egregious, showy use of American military to go visit uh, coal executives, that one may have some staying power. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it it really fits in a larger pattern of just his frivolous use of government resources and to do things that have no clear relationship with, um, you know, the EPA mission. And yeah, the uh, I I can't speak to how you know folks across the country would would react to that, but you would think that um, that using a Black Hawk military helicopter to visit a coal mine, um, you know without any reason for, for needing to do that um, would strike people the wrong way. I think it certainly should. And it's, you know, it's in line with um, his wasteful use of taxpayer money to go on these um, trips where he's been, you know, promoting natural gas in Morocco. Um, there's, you know, already a federal investigation into was that appropriate. Um, his Italy trip that he basically, um, one of the things revealed in the emails was that there was, he did about four hours of, you know, nominally work-related events there versus, 
um, longer periods at, you know, lavish private meals. Um, and so I think, yeah, the, the, the use of that military helicopter is uh, disturbing in itself, but also in, a line, in line with, um, you know, some of the other stories that have come out about him. I don't know if this is in line with your position as a senior attorney with the Sierra Club, so please, you can, you can demur on this one. I'm wondering what the best possible end game is with Scott Pruitt. Let me expound on that. I don't think this is a man who can be persuaded to behave and to be, you know, a, to be accountable to the public, to keep a real eye on the climate, to really care how much junk is in the air. I don't see that as happening. And I'm wondering, as far as the Sierra Club is concerned, what's the best possible thing that can happen with Scott Pruitt? Well, uh, we definitely think that it, he needs to either resign or be fired. And that's the, you know, he needs to be out. <laughs> I love you guys. Uh, there's, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's no equivocation about that uh, from our point of view. Elena, thank you so much for making time. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Elena Saxonhouse is a senior attorney with the Sierra Club. And that right there is a wrap on today's broadcast. Brad and Desi have a few more precious days off, but you will hear them again next week. I will be with you tomorrow. I'm Angie Quero. As ever, good luck, world.